0: Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode nine. So, before we get into talking about today's episode, I'm so excited to announce that we finally have some original podcast music. I've been wanting to add something to the show pretty much since we got rolling, but I wanted to make sure that it was exactly right. And so, it all kind of came together when one of my really good friends and favorite people in the world, Timmy Turbo Lincoln, was in town a few weeks ago. Timmy is a super talented musician he's really creative he's way cooler than I'll ever be and he's done music for so many different companies including Nike Cheerios Coca-Cola and KFC just to name a few I mean he's like super big time so when he offered to do music for my podcast I obviously jumped at that offer and he is slumming here but I'll take it so thank you so much to Timmy I love the music so much but before you hear it i want to tell you guys a funny story so he came to visit new york he lives in new orleans and he called me after he got home and said that he had listened to my my episode of the podcast on his flight home from new york and he was like yo girl <laughs> he's like i didn't realize you could listen to podcasts at different r- speeds so he was on the flight listening to my episode and thinking like, God, Ali, you sound crazy. I know it's your first episode and you're super excited, but like, calm down, girl. And he listened to probably three minutes of me manically talking. And then he realized that he had it on double the speed. <laughs> so anyway, he did do the music. I love it so much. And I love him. Thanks, Timmy. To see more of his work, check out timlincoln.com. And I hope you guys like it as much as I do. So let's get into now that we've got the music sorted out, let's talk about today's episode. My guest today is Helena, a friend of one of my besties who lives in Los Angeles. Hi Leanne. Helena's story is really raw and really interesting, and it goes to places that we haven't yet gone on the podcast. She talks about how being an eyewitness to the terrorist attacks on 9-11 caused her a lot of trauma. We also talk about her PCOS. Polyps and her years of battling an eating disorder. The 9 11 stuff kind of comes into play too because she realized that she had some undiagnosed PTSD and it all kind of ties in together to her infertility stuff. We also talk about how when she was pregnant with twins, they ended up losing one of the babies, the boy, at 21 weeks. And Helena really gets into the difficult experience of still being pregnant with one baby, but knowing that the other one is not viable still inside of your body. And she describes it so well saying, quote, I was celebrating and mourning at the same time. So I was really touched by her story. And there's a lot of ups and downs. And I just want to thank her for sharing it with all of us. She's been through so much, but she's come out the other side, really wanting to help people. And that's why she wanted to talk to me and to you guys. So without further ado, this is Helena's infertility story. Let's get started. Did you always know that you wanted to be a mom and have kids?
1: So I'm one of four kids. I'm the second. And I grew up with lots of cousins. And uh, I grew up around a lot of other families with, you know, large families with a lot of kids. So I was always really comfortable around babies and kids. And it just felt normal to me to be in a family environment with, you know, kids of every age running around. So that for me felt like it was an inevitable part of my future. Um, And by the time I was a teenager, I knew that because of sort of generations of troubled family relationships and dysfunction in my family, that having kids and raising them in an emotionally healthy home was a way to change those patterns and that that was going to be a really important job for me. So I knew I wanted kids someday, Uh, you know, I, there are a lot of women who are itching and blue, you know, just, you know, like every cell in their body wants to have babies and kids. I was not that person for most of my life. I knew I wanted them, but I, I guess I had a little more patience than a lot of people. I can't say why that is. It could just be that, you know, I, I had a confidence that it would happen in the right time or that, you know, maybe I just was really disconnected from my desires, which is something that's consistent in my life too. But my husband and I met in New York City. Uh, We were both temping in the music business and we started dating in the spring of 2001. And within about three months, we got pretty serious and we knew we were in love. And I felt that this was different than any other of the high drama relationships i would had before. This one just felt grounded and real and honest and there weren't any weird games going on. So this was spring 2001, and then 9-11 happened. And at the time, I was staying most nights with him in the East Village, and at his apartment in the East Village, so I was downtown. And I was nannying for a family in Soho, so I could just walk from his apartment to my job. So on 9-11, that's what I did. And I got to my job, and my boss was like, Oh, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here today. And then literally 10 minutes later, we heard a plane flying low overhead. We ran to the window. We saw the plane hit the building. We saw wow, the second saw that thing. We saw the buildings collapse. I saw bodies falling out of the sky I was an eyewitness and needless to say, it was traumatic. But what happened as far as, you know, my husband, my then boyfriend was it brought us closer together and it, you know, later that night, after a day of just, you know, literal hell, when he was able to get back on the train, the trains were running again, he could get past the checkpoints to get home, and we reunited, I realized, like, I just, I'm like, oh, you are my home, you know, this, when I saw him, it just was very clear that whatever happens in my life, he's my home, so that was, you know, our first year, that was in our first Dating and we moved in shortly thereafter and moved to Brooklyn and have been together ever since.
0: Okay. And then, when after you guys got married, how long was it before you started trying to have a baby?
1: We got married when I was 33, and no, engaged when I was 33, married when I was 34. And at that time, I knew I had polycystic ovarian syndrome, I had PCOS, uh, I had diagnosed in my 20s. So I always knew that I would have challenges when it came time to being pregnant, but I didn't really know what those challenges would be. So right when we got married, I think it was the year after 2008, I, um, I went off the pill and we just kind of agreed, you know, let's just see what happens. You know, let's wait and see. Maybe we, it'll be easy. We don't know. But after a couple of years, it you know, without getting pregnant, I I realized that we were going to need some help. We were going to need some kind of intervention. So I also knew the earlier we got that help, the better. So on my OB's recommendation, we started working with a fertility specialist, and I started getting regular acupuncture because I'd heard that that can be helpful with fertility in general and uh, specifically for people with PCOS.
0: Right. So how old were you at this time? I was hmm, 35, I think. Okay. And did you... Were you just having trouble getting pregnant or had you had a miscarriage at this point?
1: No, at that point, I just was not on the pill. We weren't using any kind of protection. We, it'd been that way for a couple of years. And okay. a, I bought a book on like natural fertility and that really educational about everything from cycles to fertility, to PCOS, to, you know, diets, to, you know, everything you can do to improve your chances. And I was using, my guideline, but in two years we didn't get pregnant. And so by what, I guess, what would I have been like 36? And I knew that the closer I got to that age, the fewer eggs I would have. So I knew we had to sort of like put things in fast motion. Mm -hmm. So we started seeing this fertility specialist and he told us that in our situation that IUI would take several rounds and wasn't always the most effective and that IVF would probably be the fastest, most, you know, like surefire option for us. And so we, we sort of, we started meeting with him and then my OB discovered that I had polyps and she suggested I get a hysteroscopy. And the fertility specialist said he didn't think the polyps would be a problem, but my acupuncturist so she knew this fertility, this specific doctor, and she said, I really pushed to have this procedure because it could make implantation difficult. Mm-hmm. So I had procedure, and the doctor said, oh, it's a good thing we did that because you had one blocking the entrance from your cervix to your uterus. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was like, and his attitude is like, oh, I'm really glad that I decided to do that. But yeah, the- taking the credit for it. <laughs> exactly. And so... There was just a couple other weird things going on with him too. Like a friend of mine was seeing him and there was some weird invasion of privacy stuff that happened with her. And so I just started becoming wary of him specifically. And it seemed like he might be one of those doctors that's just out to catch some insurance checks and didn't really care about your success rate. You know, if you have any doubts about your doctor, it just becomes, you know, like you're, you're freaked out anyway.
0: You're emotional- yes. Already such a complicated and emotional situation. You don't need the red flags of like trusting your doctor. Exactly,
1: exactly. So, you know, I, at this time, uh, my acupuncturist was telling me that I had to change my diet. She was saying, okay, for your body type and the types of reactions you're having to certain foods, your fertility and your overall health would improve if you stopped eating gluten and sugar and you stuck to a low carb diet. So I kept trying to be consistent with my eating. Like I kept trying, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'd leave her office. I'm like, well, then I'm not going to eat any, you know, sugar this week. And I just, I could not stop eating these things I knew weren't healthy for me. And I felt like I was, I felt like I, I could, I had no control over what I was eating. Hmm. And one day in 2010, I had an epiphany and I became just, suddenly aware of the fact that I had some pretty serious food and eating behaviors food issues and eating behaviors that weren't healthy
0: and I asked and they were like coming back up to the surface or that they had they were starting then
1: they had been going on most of my life but Mm -hmm. they'd become more extreme in recent years and I wasn't I and and I was doing things unconsciously and I I had this moment of consciousness where I like, I was not going to eat any carbs that day. And I looked down at the empty plate of cheeseburger deluxe that I had just finished eating and the empty ice cream carton. And I'm like, what happened? When did I eat this? Wow. So. I, I basically realized I'd been yo-yo dieting, I'd been restricting food and calories, and I'd been compulsively dieting and then compuls- compulsively eating and binging, and I'd been doing this without consciousness around it for years. Mm-hmm. And then I found a support group, and I realized that I had an eating disorder. Basically, you know, in, in, in large and small ways, most of my life, but it became exacerbated on 9-11 and that I'd been in this like 10-year dark hole of disordered food behaviors and, you know, that I I believe was trauma-induced and that I'd undiagnosed PTSD and I was self-soothing and medicating with food. And in going to these support group meetings, I just realized that this was where the fire was that had to be put out in my life. And so my recovery from this eating disorder became my primary focus for about two years. Like I, I, every, nothing else mattered until I got well. I'm not going to be able to have a healthy pregnancy, but also for me, because I'd always known I wanted to be, you know, the healthiest mom I could be emotionally and mentally that I couldn't be the mom I wanted to be if I was in an active eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And the idea of having kids someday and, you know not having the tools to teach them how to you know behave around food was terrifying to me mm-hmm. i mean it is on a daily basis but that's just what it's like living with an eating disorder but my recovery became my priority so the the it was sort of like i you know all this fertility stuff goes on the back burner so we stopped going to that fertility doctor for multiple reasons but the main one was i just needed to get my life right you know And so that was in 2010. And then around that time, it was a couple years later, my husband was offered a pretty great job in LA and we had been talking about leaving New York. We were, you know, we were just tired, you know, (laughs) like the older we got, the harder it was for us to enjoy living in New York. And we were kind of reaching our breaking point. So we were looking at our lives and we were looking at the kind of life we wanted, um, our future kids to have. And it was hard to picture that happening in New York. And so we kind of made a big life change and we moved across the country in 2012. So I had two years of recovery and felt like a new person. I felt more connected to my body and I had a mind body connection that I hadn't experienced in, you know, since before nine 11 and By the time we got here, we kind of moved things into fast motion. I had a best friend here with with three kids that she and her wife had using IVF. They loved their doctor. So we started seeing him right away. And we just kind of put the paddle to the metal at that point. That first year in LA, we did an egg extraction. And one benefit that a lot of women, not all, but a lot of women have with PCOS is that we... Can make a lot of eggs that our ovaries hold on to. So, if you have the right kind of fertility medicine, your ovaries will make an abundance of eggs. So, then for my extraction, I want to say that I got more than 20 eggs out okay. from extraction, which, okay. you know, for anybody listening to this that got two eggs, please don't compare yourself because yeah. every scenario is different. That was, you know, the lucky side of having this, you know, hormonal disorder. Right. And then from those eggs, I think we had 12 strongish embryos. Wow. So that first year we implanted three embryos and we got very, very, very lucky. And we were pregnant after just one try, one implantation. We were, um, we were pregnant with twins. Uh-huh. And so this was... 2013. And then, you know, so I think most women do this when they're pregnant. You wait through your first trimester. Your first trimester, you'll tell your closest people that you're pregnant, you know. But then as you move out, out of that first trimester, you start telling the world. And so, you know, all of the people in my life knew I was expecting twins. And then our 19th or 20th week when we went to find out the gender of our babies. We discovered that we were pre- I was pregnant with a boy and a girl, and we discovered that baby B, the boy, had some major chromosomal abnormalities and had heart defects, mm-hmm. and that he would not make it to term. And then by the 21st week, the- we lost the heartbeat.
0: Yeah. You write so eloquently, you wrote an article for Cosmo about this, going through this experience of being pregnant with twins and losing one in utero, which was just so devastating. But I wanted to read something that you wrote because I love the way that you phrased it and how, so you went to your 20 week appointment, as you said, you found out the gender, but you, when the doctor walked into the room, basically you knew that something was wrong. You could tell like by the look on his face. And then you talk about how you had to move to the, they wanted to do testing immediately. So you moved to the waiting room and you write with other pregnant women who are sitting smugly in maternal bliss. And that line resonated so hard with me because I think that's something that I really want to crack open a little bit and talk about because mm-hmm. there's this like pregnancy kind of jealousy thing that you go through when you're having a hard time where when you see other women, at least for me, I would just, start to seethe and then you like are like oh my gosh I'm such a terrible person why would I think that way about somebody they're so happy why would I want to shit on their happiness but it's just this thing that I think doesn't get talked about a lot because it's kind of shameful and you don't want to admit that you have jealousy but I'd love to hear your yeah. on that like what exactly were you feeling about you know seeing all these other women well that
1: moment was you know I don't know how else to say this it was just fucked up it was just a total mindfuck because I was still pregnant. Right. I still had this blissful information that I was pregnant with a healthy baby girl. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm sobbing because I was concurrently losing a baby. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I was celebrating and mourning at the same time. Being another- in this room, it was problematic because I'd just been given this devastating news. And then I was escorted into a secondary waiting room full of pregnant women who were just waiting for their nutritionist consultations. You know, these are women in their third trimesters who are just at an appointment. You know, the staff made a real error in telling us to wait there. Yep. But um, more to your point, I may be one of those women that some other woman struggling with fertility would be jealous of like, oh, what's it like getting pregnant your first round with IVF? You know, so I think it's very easy when you're going through any kind of struggle to have a, you know, to compare yourself to other people and then you find yourself despairing. So at that time in my life, I was very able to stay focused on me, my path, and, um, and my road. So I personally on, you know, on, on a regular basis, didn't compare myself to other people that I felt had what I wanted, but I couldn't get there because I had what my closest girlfriends wanted. you know what I mean? I had, I had girlfriends who were older than me that had gone through, through this, who had had dozens of miscarriages. You know, I Friends who found out they didn't have any viable eggs and used, you know, egg donors. So I, I was able to see my fortune. But for me, my personal struggle was balancing my fortune with my loss. And in that room, yes, looking around at these other women that were not struggling, it, the, the thoughts I had were I would say I was like, you don't know pain, <laughs> you know. Like how? How dare you make any assumptions about what I may or may not be going through? Maybe you're going to go through this someday. You know, I don't have any reason to believe any of them were judging me. I'm sure they were looking at me like, "Oh shit, will I get good news, bad news too?" You know. So, I I think I think when we're all going through it, we're all so afraid of what could go wrong yeah. that we can kind of choose to live in that fear. I will say for me personally though, because of my recovery program, I was, I think it's because of my recovery program, I was able to sort of stay in my own lane. And also it just was such a deeply personal moment that I, I just didn't really have time to take in anybody else around me other than the discomfort of sobbing in a room
0: full of people. Right. I'm talk about again another like eloquent way that you phrase it was you were talked about being terrified that when your daughter was born, you'd be trapped by grief, and I thought that was such a powerful way to look at it, but that you chose to focus on what you had and not what you had lost, so I'm sure that was harder than it sounds, but was that kind of where you were going with your your head at least
1: yeah, you know i i didn't I didn't know how to process what I was feeling. And, but at the same time, you don't know what it's going to feel like to be a parent. You know, no one knows what that's going to feel like. You can't predict it. You can't anticipate it. And I didn't want to stay attached to the idea of having twins because even though I couldn't understand why I had to lose one, why I was going through this, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, if I have a higher power that, you know, some people call God, why was God doing this to me? Why was God abandoning me? Why did I have to go through? this? Which was also tied to my PTSD because I've never understood why I had to be there on 9-11, why I had to see that, you know, why me. And I think that that's that, it's that phrase, that why me phrase that goes through all of our heads when we're going through any kind of struggle, so, I had to find a way to accept that this just was my journey, and I let go of my attachments to a specific outcome. and in this particular scenario, when it came to you know having my baby, I didn't want to be a half mom. I didn't want to be half a mom or distracted mom thinking about what I'd lost. I wanted to fully feel the joy of what I had. you know I was overjoyed to be having a daughter. I I I was actually I had the thought going to the hospital that day I I was terrified that I wasn't going to have daughters because God didn't think I deserved to have daughters cuz I had an eating disorder oh wow and it's a totally irrational insane thing to think because of course all I wanted was healthy babies you know like that's all I wanted. But if I were to honestly look at my heart's desire, I wanted daughters because I, I wanted the opportunity to share with them my, my own personal journey and growth, you know, as, as a girl and a woman. And so I, I wanted to feel that joy and I was really overjoyed to be having a daughter and, and I didn't want to have that joy because I was losing another baby. mm mm-hmm. so I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know how I was going to get to that joy. I just wanted to be sure I got there before she was born.
0: Right. And there's another part where you talked about your baby shower and the way that you described it, I thought really nailed it, where you said, at my shower, the tulips cake and the loving messages written to my baby girl dangling delicately from the chandelier were a pleasant diversion from the feeling that I was attending a funeral at a wedding. That gave me chills. There was a hole yeah. that everyone could see, you said. Yeah, I mean, so- the
1: timing of the shower was so close to losing the twin. Like it was it was within a month, I think, and it's because I was expecting twins, we planned an early shower,
0: right. so that
1: I didn't have to worry about traveling later in my pregnancy. And we talked about canceling the shower, but to me, that felt like canceling my joy. Yep. To me, that felt like I was more honoring my loss than honoring my, um, you know, my daughter. So we, we moved ahead with the shower and my sister and my mom lovingly, you know, told everybody in my life that, you know, what had happened and that I didn't want to talk about it and that we were focused on you know, our beautiful girl that was coming into the world. So yes, I walked into that shower just ready to celebrate, but I knew every person in that room knew exactly what was going on in my heart and in my head. And these people knew me better than almost anyone. So it was hard to make eye contact. You know, we were, there was just this, you know, the elephant in the room, no one was going to talk about, and they were so respectful to not to not even like put a hand on my shoulder and say, are you okay? You know, like that wouldn't have been an appropriate thing to do that day. And, and it was a beautiful, beautiful shower because everybody in my life kind of knew better than to do that. But, you know, this was what was so messed up about my pregnancy is that in the back of my mind, as my, my daughter grew, I knew that the remains of the other twin were calcifying at the same time, you know? So as she flourished, as she grew and as she took over my womb that she had been sharing, you know, I, I really on a spiritual level wondered how aware she was of that. You know, I wondered how she, you you know, if, if, if this was going to impact her in life, if it was impacting her then. And because I have, don't have answers to those questions, I just tried to push the questions out. Mm -hmm. And this is, the only way to get over grief is time. And it's not that the pain goes away. The pain just gets easier to live with over time. And to this day, I still, I still mourn that loss, but it's not, I've had other losses since and it's not acute anymore. And I see it as a big, you know, is one painful part of a broader journey and the journey is what's more important. And You know, I will also add that this was a really complicated time for us because as we were going through all of this, my father-in-law was very sick on the other side of the country. Mm -hmm. And all my husband and I could do was just hold each other through this. I don't remember even being able to really talk about anything, even with each other. We were just feeling it. We just both were feeling so much at that time that to talk about it just would have meant being a constant mess. So you know, I made the choice to go back to work pretty quickly after losing the twin because I needed to establish some kind of normalcy. I needed, I needed to be thinking about spreadsheets and conference calls instead of you know dead babies.
0: I needed
1: to keep my brain moving forward. I knew that I had to have a respectful. Morning period, which I felt I had, but I needed my brain moving forward because my body and my pregnancy were moving forward, and I needed to sort of uh, progress in tandem with that. So, I had a friend at work explain to my coworkers what happened, and that obviously I didn't want to talk about it, and that we were just moving forward. And as I say this, I don't want anyone to think I was sweeping anything under the rug and avoiding feeling feeling anything because I because I'm in recovery, I am. I was able to feel things for the first time in my life in a very long time that I had been numbing out with food. Mm-hmm. So I, I was fetal and sobbing on the floor, you know, holding my dog screaming why at the ceiling way, I, I, which I think is an appropriate reaction to all of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when it comes to moving on with your life, when you're grieving, you find a way to do it. And i right. um, you know, the small and important things like spreadsheets are easier to focus on than the big life-altering things.
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. tell me about in July 2013, you went into labor.
1: Yeah. So I, again, this is just a month before my due date on my first 40th birthday, my father-in-law passed away. Oh, wow. So um, my husband was, on the East coast. And I was not able to be there with him because I was so far along. And and that was just, it was a devastating, complicated, emotional time for us. But by July, I, I mean, I had a really healthy pregnancy after that, a very healthy, I had great energy. My sister uh, is a doula, or she was a doula and she was my doula and she lived in the Seattle area. So as my due date approached, um, we talked about her coming down and, um, kind of being, being available. So, uh, what ended up happening was in July, I think it was July, I guess it would have been July 18th of 2013. I was full term and I was at work and I started having contractions and Mercury was in retrograde, so the fax machine wasn't working. I wasn't getting my forms in for my maternity leave. Nobody's phone was working. I was trying to call my husband to tell him I was in labor. His phone wasn't working. He wasn't answering. It was going to voicemail, and then his phone suddenly died. I'm on the 405 driving, having regular contractions, trying to call my sister, trying to tell her what was going on. The phones Wait, you're kept
0: driving going. yourself as you're having contractions? Yes. Contractions? Oh, my God. Yes, oh my God. yes.
1: And she's, like, timed them, and I was just like, not gonna time them you time them <laughs> and so I just I got home my mother-in-law was living with us at the time thank god so I got home I wasn't alone my husband worked in Orange County at the time which was about an hour and a half two hours away we'd had a couple brief conversations on the phone so he knew I was in labor and I knew he was trying to get home but as the hours went by I in my head was like well I guess I'm a single parent now yeah. you know as when, when you're in labor, you just kind of catastrophize as the pain increases. So right. I just remember sitting in my my house at my computer, listening to the Grateful Dead, sitting on a yoga ball, bouncing through every contraction as they came. And then my sister said, try to take a nap. I'm getting on a plane. I couldn't nap. So my my labor was progressing really really quickly. She got here, I think at around midnight. And, um, at that point I was actually in active labor. So when she got here, I got in the bath, I continued to labor at home. I was having back labor. So it was really intense. And, um, but I will say having a doula, I I, I always say having a doula is like having the professor in the room with you when you're taking the test, giving you all the answers, because all of the fears that come up when you're in labor, like, whoa I've never experienced this kind of pain is this normal what should I do the dual is there to tell you yes it's normal here's what you can do you know and help you help you feel good about whatever decision you're making for yourself now I labored at home I reached a point where my sister said you know I I think maybe we can go to the hospital now we can take our time we got to the front porch at that point I started like crouching down oh no (laughs) We cut in the car and my husband decided to take a different route to the hospital for some reason. And I'm having back labor in the car. We got detoured. It took us longer to get there. Um, We get to the hospital. I was nine centimeters dilated. They were trying to get the heart rate of the baby and they couldn't because the baby was so low. The OB came in, looked at me and said, we have to get her directly into delivery. So like four pushes and 500 profanities later, my my girl was there. You know, she was in my arms and it was an easy, fast labor. My sister turned to me and said, congratulations, you just had your third baby first because it was such an easy, fast labor. And, <laughs> you know, at the time I was like, well, maybe I earned this.
0: Yes. I know you said the universe rewarded you with a fast and drug free first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I will say this with, with later, you know, I'm skipping ahead, but my second daughter, it was a completely different, situation it was an induction it was drugs it was in the hospital you know if she took her she didn't progress so like there's no right or wrong way to have a baby but but for a first time after everything I'd gone through it really did it was a beautiful beautiful you know rewarding experience
0: right and your sister who was your doula as you said she asked if you wanted to see The remains of baby B and you said no, which I thought was really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. um, You know, enough time had passed between, you know, my 21st week and my 39th, 40th, you know, whichever week I was in that I knew, you know, this was just calcified cells. You know, this, this was, you know, a lump of cells. And I thought, seeing it if it resembled anything like a human would just be he, he, why would i want to see you know like why you can't on earth unsee that you can't unsee that and the whole point of me being in that room was in my arms already you know like the the this this life that had been given to me was already in my arms and i You know, I had mourned the loss already. So it for me, it would have felt like digging up a grave. Mm -hmm. It it felt wrong for me. And that's not to say that if, you know, somebody in that position made a different choice that, you know, that would be wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying for me, it would have felt like digging up a grave. And why would I want to do that, A? And B, why would I want to do that on my, you know, the, at the birth of my daughter who was in my arms, I had found a way to uh, mourn and celebrate the, the baby that I, I'd lost in the months previous. And I, I didn't need to do that in that moment. I, that moment, you know, I was singing to her, I was holding her, I was crying, she was nursing, you know, it was such an extraordinary birth experience that I didn't want to tarnish it at all, you know, so
0: that's beautiful so, yeah. we're, so she's five now uh, yeah she's
1: five and a half she's almost six, and
0: have you um, or will you talk to her about her twin brother? do you think or
1: my husband and I talked about it briefly um about whether or not we would when we would, and we agree that maybe someday when she's older um She's an incredibly sensitive and empathic girl and she understands a lot for her age, but we don't want her to feel anything. She's not mature enough to understand. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to go with our guts on this. We're, uh, you know, we're going to one year at a time. She's still very young, you know, but yeah. I, I, I imagine I will tell her, but at a time when she's, when I when I feel in my gut, she's emotionally ready to understand it.
0: Understood. Yeah. So did you guys know after all you'd been through that you, you mentioned, obviously, you do have another child, another girl, right? Yes. Did you guys know that you wanted more kids or did it take a minute to, to come to that conclusion or?
1: I just kept thinking about those embryos and with the, the amount of loss we went through in that year, I just... I'm like I want to have all the babies in the world right now. You know, I want and like the the birth was so easy. I'm like let's just have all of those babies. <laughs> and you know, so there wasn't any real logic to it. It was just like an emotional yes, let's keep moving forward. Let's keep moving forward. And um then when my daughter was 2, uh we went through a second round of IVF and um got pregnant. At, you know, after one round we implanted two embryos and got pregnant and then it, sometime between having my first daughter in this pregnancy, they invented this amazing test that at 13 weeks tells you, you know, if you, um, if there are any chromosomal abnormalities and the gender right at 13 weeks with the blood test. So that was a huge relief to have access to that test. And my doctor called and gave us the results and said, you know, this is a, a healthy baby, and you're having a girl. And I, it was a full moon that night. My husband and I went for a walk and just talked about getting stuff out of storage. And um, that night, I had a miscarriage, okay. and um, we lost the girl. And it was a horrible, horrible, you know, loss. It was at 13 weeks, mm-hmm. and I had to be—I had to go to the hospital in an ambulance. I had two blood transfusions. Oh, it was it was incredibly intense it was horrible but but this time it's not that it was any less painful but i had a different i had a different sort of spiritual reaction to it um the first time i had a crisis of faith you know i felt abandoned by god i couldn't understand why i had to endure this but with this one, I felt held by the other mothers in my life, and I felt I was able to feel the grace of my my husband's love for me, and I was able to find some gratitude in the experience. You know, gratitude for the other women in my life, the other mothers, my friends who had been through this. Um, I was my niece happened to be staying with us, so even though it was a hugely traumatic experience for her to witness, she was able to be there with my daughter. Yeah. So I. You know, getting through that, I experienced what you know what some people call God, um, but I experienced that in the form of gratitude and love. So it was incredibly painful. It was a horrible loss, but I felt something sustaining me this time through it that I I hadn't had the time before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we waited. I think another year before trying IVF again and we had a successful round. We implanted two embryos. I got pregnant. I went through, you know, all the same anxiety and stressors in those months, you know, those weeks, you know, moving up to that 13 week, that 13 week mark. And then actually had a scare because I had some spotting and, you know, I just, I didn't know if I could go through it again. My husband said, I can't go through this again, but luckily we got to the doctor. It turns out my progesterone had dipped, you know, dramatically. And I went on, I, I, they doubled my, my, my progesterone doses and it brought them back up, The levels back up to normal. And, um, and then following that, I had a a healthy, normal pregnancy. And, um, I had my second daughter, uh, 20 months ago. Wow. Yeah.
0: What are your little girl's names? If you don't mind.
1: Azora is five and a half, uh, Azora James. She's named my, my paternal grandmother's middle name was Azora and James is my husband's grandfather's name. And our second daughter is Alice Aurelia and Alice was my great-grandmother's name, and Aurelia is my mother-in-law's name. Beautiful, beautiful.
0: What would you say is your favorite part of being a mom?
1: Discovering every day who my kids are. I think that whether or not you share DNA with your kids, you have no idea what their personalities are going to be or what traits you know they're going to have that you can help to cultivate to help them blossom into themselves and guiding them to be loving towards each other, no matter what, and seeing their love grow is, is just beautiful. And I try to remember that they're the teachers and that they're really here to teach me to love more. And that is Just part of a beautiful, beautiful experience. And just the daily surprises in finding out who they are, you know, with what they say, what they do, what they discover, how they express themselves. It's incredibly, um, it's enriched my life so much.
0: Yeah. And if you had to say, if anyone listening right now, you know, is going through infertility struggles or has maybe lost a baby or a miscarriage, do you have any like words of advice or wisdom or hope? just for people that might need a little
1: something? I would say that there's nothing more beautiful than wanting to expand your heart, to make room for more love. And that there are many ways to do this, building a life with a partner, with a pet, birthing a child, adopting or fostering a child, becoming a step parent, becoming a surrogate aunt or uncle to a friend's kid. If, if you're somebody that is is trying to become pregnant try to look at the journey as expanding the love in your life and and know that love is a constant no matter what your circumstances are and that if you focus on the love you do have and you build a support group around you of loving friends and family no matter what you're going through if you experience loss if you discover you're not able to actually have your own your own kids you have friends and loved ones who can help bolster you. And I think that I think that also if you do experience any kind of loss it's important to have a friend or a loved one who's that person that can you can just send a text to and they'll let everybody else know in your life what's going on so that you aren't in a position of being the messenger. But ultimately what we're trying to do here is expand the love in our lives, you know, and there are a lot of ways to do that. And having kids is one way, and it's a beautiful, rewarding experience that I hope everybody gets to experience who wants to experience it.
0: I love that, expanding the love in our lives. That's such a good note to end on. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and for just being so honest about everything. It's probably not easy to relive some of that, but I really appreciate it and know that we're going to help some people that need to hear these kinds of stories. So thank you for doing this. And um, if there's anything else, just let me know. Hi again, guys. So I want to thank Tim Lincoln again for my incredible Infertile AF theme song. I love it so much. Hope you guys like it as much as I do. And I also want to thank Helena for her honesty and for sharing her story. And I want to thank all of you guys for listening. Next week, we have our first guy on the podcast. So please make sure to stay tuned for that. And I will see you next time. Thanks.